Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Stone and Tile Show. I am your host, Fred Houston. I hope everyone is going to have a great Fourth of July coming up tomorrow. What I wanted to do this week is talk about several issues. Um, Some of them are, are, most of them are fabrication issues. One of them is an installation issue. But uh, let me just kind of go down our list right here. And that is we're going to talk about slab, buying slabs, and some of the issues that we're starting to see, especially with some of the fabricators that I'm talking to. Uh, Again, the pink discoloration. I know I've covered this before, but we're going to talk about that again for those of you that didn't catch what that was. We're going to talk about sealing shower pans. And what I mean is after the installation with some of these impregnators, we'll get into that. Uh, Another issue that came up recently with uh, some fabricators that have talked to me is uh, cabinets. Uh, what should we be allowed to touch as far as cabinets go? Uh, the blue-green uh, bloom that we see on certain grants, we'll talk about that. Uh, also, silicone bleeding. Uh, I'm going to give you some tips for top polishing both granite and some of the engineered materials and how to get back that, that kind of alligator dimpled appearance that you see in a lot of these uh, engineered quartz surfaces that we see out there today. Uh, storing glue. I actually had a fabricator uh, ask me about you know, how to properly store some of the glues that we're using. And while we're talking about glues, uh, we'll talk about the difference between epoxies and polyester. So those are going to be the topics for today. If at any time during uh, uh, the show here, if you want to call in uh, and add your comments, uh, have a question, or just give us some advice, uh, then telephone number to call into would be 323 870 3968. That's 323-870-3968. If you don't want to get on the radio here, then uh, you can send me an email to fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Or if you're on Facebook, although I've heard Facebook is having a little trouble today, especially with videos and photographs, but I think Messenger is still working, uh, just go ahead and search for my Facebook page, Stone Forensics, and uh, send me an instant message. I have that window open as well as my email uh, window open as well. Okay, so... Let's go ahead and attack the first topic. And this is an issue that is starting to come up uh, with you fabricators that are dealing with slab yards or slab distributors. And the question came up, or actually not, it was more than a question. It was more like an issue where uh, the slab yards were selling directly to your customers. Now, I don't necessarily mean the retail customer, but your, your builder. Um, if you're dealing with builders that, that are, um, you know, that, that you fabricate for, uh, some of the uh, sales reps are now trying to, from what I understand, I haven't I experienced this personally, are starting to try to sell directly uh, to the um, to, to the uh, builder as opposed to you, the fabricator. And that brings up a whole bunch of issues. And I'm curious, I actually have a question for the audience out there of how many of you are running into that issue. You know, in in the past when I ran a fab shop, 
you know, we had we would send our our customers to the slab yard. We would tell them ahead of time that hey, you know, uh, I've got a customer coming over there. They want to pick out some granite, and that slab yard or slab distributor wouldn't give them prices, wouldn't give them anything. They would, you know, very cordial tell them about the material they're looking at, you know, hopefully whether it's appropriate or not, and wouldn't discuss pricing at all. So now that this is coming about, and I don't understand why. It doesn't make sense to me, and I'm I'm sorry, folks, I'm going to get on my high horse here in a minute. And, again, I invite you to call in if you have an opinion on this. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense because now what has happened is some of that responsibility, especially the warranty issue, gets now placed on the builder directly if you're selling a slab directly to the builder as opposed to you as a fabricator purchasing that slab. Uh, they've got to now deal with the waste in, in, in some cases. They have to deal with any irregularities. In it. And then, you know, my question is what do you do? The builder buys the slab, puts it on a truck, gets delivered to you and it's not going to work. Uh, there, there's something wrong with the slab. It's got a crack. It's not, you know, you find something wrong. Who's responsible for that? So it becomes a big issue and I'm quite confused as to why uh, some of these distributors would do that simply because, you know, what does a builder know about uh, about slab selection? They know nothing about slab selection. So, um, you know, I thought I'd mention that. It's an issue that came up this week. If anybody has an opinion on that, feel free to call in 323-870-3968. Otherwise, I'm going to move on to the next topic. But, you know, go ahead and uh, call in anytime, and we can always go back to that. The second issue I know I've covered before. Uh, on the show, and this is one that's come up on a couple of the forums uh, online as well as uh, some of the forums on Facebook, and that is this pink, this, the pink discoloration that's occurring on some granites. Um, the granites go by any number of names, white aspen, delicatus, and there's several of them that actually do this. And, you know, I was made aware of this uh, a while ago, and I actually did some research. And as a matter of fact, in the Slippery Rock Gazette, for those of you that uh, get the Slippery Rock Gazette, if you don't, uh, I'd highly recommend that you subscribe to that uh, that paper. It's uh, free. Uh, you can look at the online uh, issue as well at slipperyrockgazette.net. That's slipperyrockgazette.net. I actually wrote an entire article on this phenomenon, but... It is not a stain per se. In other words, it's not caused by, some people have said, well, it's a bacteria that grows in the stone. Uh, someone spilled wine on the stone. Although those things can happen, don't get me wrong. But what's confusing about this pink discoloration is what tends to happen is the pink will show up. And then it'll disappear. And then it'll show up again. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. So I was able to consult with some geologists as well as do my own research and this is what I came up with. This is what that pink discoloration is coming from. It's coming from a mineral known as hackmanite, and that's spelled H-A-C-K-M-A-N-I-T-E, if you want to Google it. Uh, and this particular mineral, which can appear in some of the granites and, and probably even some of the quartzites that we're dealing with, have a condition known as tenbriescence. And uh, in other words, it's what we call it, reverse photochromatism. Now, I know that sounds like a big scientific term, but I'm going to read you what the definition is. And the definition will explain why we're getting this pink, especially when it's coming back and disappearing, coming back and disappearing. Tenbriescence is defined by minerals that are able to make this color transformation. Minerals that display the ability to change color in this fashion are terminated are termed, I'm sorry, not terminated, are termed tenbriescent. Tenbriescence 
is the property that some minerals and phosphors show a darkening in response to radiation of one wavelength and then reversibly bleaching on exposure to a different wavelength. Very few minerals exhibit this phenomenon, also known as reversible photochromatism, a word that applies to sunglasses, which change, change color density on exposure to sunlight. Uh, those of you that wear glasses and know that when you walk outside, they darken. That's what reversible photochromatism is. So essentially what's happening with this particular mineral in granite is it's being exposed to certain wavelengths. In other words, you could have a countertop that is exposed to a, a picture window, and during the day it's getting one wavelength of, of light, and then at night it's getting a different wavelength of light. So that's why you get the it appearing, disappearing, appearing, and disappearing. Now, that's one possibility. Of course, there's other possibilities, you know, with, with typical staining, but hopefully that explains you know, this mystery. And it's an issue because a lot of times you fabricators can bring a slab in, fabricate it, and it's not doing anything, and then you stick it in the customer's house, and guess what happens? You get a telephone call saying, I've got these pink stains. And we had one fabricator that went out to look at the pink stains, and they were gone. They left. The pink stains came back. Uh, so it becomes very confusing. So what I'm hoping we can do is, is with your help as fabricators and, and even you restoration contractors out there that are, are called on in on these is to email me the type of granites that you've seen this issue with and then maybe we could put something together to, to put out there to other fabricators you know, in the form of an article uh, to say, hey, these are the type of granites you want to be careful with. Uh, you could end up with this reversible photochromatism that, that can occur and this can happen. So uh, with that said, if any of you have seen this on a particular granite, if you'd send me an email with the name of the granite and a, and a photograph would be would be perfect as well. Uh, again, I'm going to give the number out here several times during the show here, 323-870-3968 if you'd, if you'd like to call in. Okay, let's get off the fabrication issue for a second and talk about the shower pan issues that are going on. Uh, there's been a, a lot of back and forth uh, conversations uh, on the web uh, with, with several forms on using especially the Carrara type marbles in the shower floor. And what we're finding, and I'm going to give you the individual's name. Actually, we interviewed him uh, uh, several months ago, and uh, he's been diligently doing some great experiments using different different setting methods, different different grouts, uh, all, all kinds of different ways. And you can actually follow him on Facebook or contact him directly, and I'm going to give you his name out in a minute. And what it's, what it's leaning to and what, what I'm seeing, and, and I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback on this, I know I'm going to get a lot of arguments, is we're seeing when we use an impregnating sealer on a shower pan floor, and I'm going to explain this in a minute why I think this happens, uh, the floor's not drying out properly. And uh, let me give his name out, and then you can search for him on Facebook, and then I'll talk about why I think that's an issue with impregnating sealers. Uh, his name is Pablo, and I'm going to mess up his last name, Starakov, and it's P-A-U-L-O, or P-A-V-L-O is his first name. And his last name is spelled S-T-A-R-Y-K-O-V. Let me uh, spell that again. First name is Pablo, P-A-V-L-O. Last name, S-T-A-R-Y-K-O-V. He's posted lots of photographs on this experiment that he's doing. Uh, I've posted on there as well. So 
Let me explain the theory of why I think this is a problem and why we're leaning towards not sealing shower pan floors, especially with white Carrara. And this could occur with other materials as well. In order to explain that, you have to understand how impregnators work. And how impregnators work, and you'll hear this term all the time, well, you know, these impregnators are breathable. Yes, they're breathable, which simply means they're breathable to vapor. Okay, in other words, if you boil water on the stove, you see the liquid water boiling away. That's the liquid phase. The steam that's coming out of the water, that's a vapor. So an impregnator will protect against water in its liquid state. In other words, you could impregnate the, the shower pan floor in this case, put water on it, and the water beads up, and you go, voila, yeah, I did a great job. It's now impregnated. But what you haven't taken into consideration is, is several things, the first being the vapor permeability. So let's say you turn a shower on and it's really, really hot and you get some steam that occurs. And this is even worse, obviously, in a steam shower, but just hot water alone or differences in temperature from the atmosphere to the water can produce a vapor in the shower. And when that occurs, the vapor can penetrate into, in through the impregnator into the stone installation, into the, into the setting bed. Now, okay, you say, well, why is that an issue? Because now what happens is when the temperature changes again back to normal or back to whatever that room temperature is or temperature is in that shower, it condenses. So we call the dew point. It condenses, and you end up with water in a liquid phase now being trapped inside the stone because it can no longer escape until it turns to a vapor again. Now, I'm not saying, and I want to be careful, there's all kinds of installation things that can go wrong with a shower pan. I'm saying done properly, and this is why Pablo is doing these experiments, done properly, uh, this can still happen. So, I mean, you have other issues, you know, with not sealing properly, not, you know, using the improper grout, setting material, yada, yada, yada. Happy anniversary, Jerry Seinfeld. Yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, but this is one possible explanation. Now, what can happen is because that water is trapped in there, you'll get permanent they're not permanent, but you'll get discoloration in there that can take a very, very long time uh, to actually dry out. And, and when Pablo is doing these experiments, obviously he has a control, which is basically no sealer, and, the, and he's wetting these. Those are drying out perfectly, where the other ones that are being sealed with the impregnator are not. So um, we can argue this back and forth, but I'm starting to feel really confident and really strong in not recommending that we use impregnators on shower pan on shower floors. The wall is another story. Uh, we haven't done that yet. This is you know an experiment in the in the shower pans and why we're seeing this darkening. May not occur in all materials. Might not be an issue with granite because the pore structure is much larger. But definitely on the Carrera, uh, we're seeing this on the Carrera marble. So if you see that and it's not weep holes being clogged, you know, whatever, after everything else checks out okay, it's probably because you sealed the, uh, the, shower with a, the shower floor with these impregnators. Now, take what I just said in theory and also apply that to exteriors as well. And as you know, and I know I've discussed this on previous shows, I'm not a huge fan of using impregnators on the outside with rare exceptions. So, I mean, that's something you want to be careful of because I've actually seen uh, uh, some issues with, and I'll give you an example. I had a 
a very porous limestone baluster uh, on a very expensive home in, in Florida on the beach that was sealed prior to installation. It was installed, and within months it started spalling like crazy. Well, what had happened is you have to remember, as dry as you can get that stone, you're never going to get it dry. And with that being said, the humidity within the stone versus humidity on outside of the stone, when you seal it and that, that vapor inside that stone starts to condense and turns into a liquid form, it can't escape. And when it can't escape, you can end up with all kinds of issues with spalling, of spalling, et cetera. It's normally not an issue with flooring in an interior situation because you're in an air-conditioned space, and you usually have a constant temperature uh, with a fairly constant uh, humidity level. And, and you know, I, I, I've had issues in the past, but it's because the air conditioning went off. There was a big difference there. But generally, you don't see that problem. So I don't want... I don't want any nasty emails or telephone calls from, you know, sealer manufacturers that say, Fred, you're wrong here. Here we go again with, you know, you're, you're bashing, you know, these sealers. I'm not. That's not my intent. My intent is to try to find the reason why this darkening is occurring on sealed shower floors. And this is what the, this is what the data is showing. So, uh, you know, he's still, Pablo's still doing some, some experiments, but everything we're seeing is leading more and more. So if you want to bitch to someone, bitch to him. <laughs> Again, Pablo, P-A-V-L-O-S-T-A-R-Y-K-O-V. Follow him on Facebook. It, it tends to be a really, really interesting conversation. So with that said, let's go back to fabrication. And this is another issue that came up that I would like to know from the listeners here, and whether you're listening live or you're listening on the archives, I would appreciate an email with your opinion. And that the subject came up with cabinets. Okay, you go in, let's say everything's perfect, you know, you're dealing with your builder or the cabinet guy, you go in and, uh, you, you know, you when you do your template, uh, everything looks fine and dandy at the template, uh, you fabricate your countertop, you go to install the countertop, and there's some things that you have to change on the cabinet. You know, you may have to put a, a sleeper on, on a corner somewhere, or you have to remove something on that cabinet. Uh, do you do that? And that's the question. You know, is it your responsibility, uh, or do you call the cabinet guy or the builder and say, hey, you know, I, I can't install this countertop because I need this brace here or, or whatever. And I know in some states, and since this is a worldwide show, it's going to differ, I'm sure, between all you guys. But, you know, the example I always use that in some states, you cannot do plumbing unless you're a licensed plumber. So you can't insta even install a fixture without having a licensed plumber. Now, you know, when I, I did fabrication, you know, there were some instances where we would, you know, do some, not plummet, but we would actually install the faucet and let the plumber uh, hook it up. But uh, in some states, you can't do that. So the problem I see, and again, this is just my opinion, and I'm sure everyone has an opinion on this, is that the minute you touch the cabinets or you try modifying the cabinets, that becomes your responsibility. Uh, you know, you're, you, you've now touched it. You've now modified it you're paying for any mistakes that make at that particular point because the cabinet guy is going to say, hey, you know, I, I signed off on this. My job was complete, and you came in and you, you made these changes. So I think you need to be extremely careful uh, when it comes to uh, modifying the, these cabinets. And, again, I'd be interested to know, uh, and I can mention it again on either the show if you want to call in today or uh, at, at another show. And so what, what your policy is. I mean, what's your policy? Uh, and not only what your policy is, is that policy written? Do you discuss that with the, the builder or the client, you know, up, up front? Or do you just go ahead and make those? Uh, and, I, again, a lot of times those are minor 
uh, minor adjustments, but on the other hand, if something goes wrong, you know, you slip, the uh, saw slips because you're cutting something out, a hammer slips, and now you ruin the cabinet because you were trying to modify that cabinet, guess what? You bought that cabinet if it can't, if it can't be fixed. So, all right. Um, again, the telephone number, 323-870-3968. Uh, let's go back to staining uh, and another issue that has been around for a while, and that's the blue-green bloom that occurs on certain granites, especially the light-colored granites or the, um, the, the gold-colored gold granites. And again, I'll put this request out there for those of you guys that have experienced it. If you can send me an email with the types of granites that you're seeing this blue-green bloom on, I'm going to tell you how to get rid of it or one of the techniques for how to get rid of it and what causes it. What causes it usually is the accelerator in the CA glue. So a lot of you use what, what we call CA glue, which is cyanoacrylate glue, which basically is super glue, and you use that accelerator, that spray. Well, a lot of times, depending on the accelerator, that accelerator can react with minute or trace amounts of copper in the stone, and you'll end up getting that bluish green. It looks like a copper staining. And it's very difficult to get out. Some guys have gotten it out with heat. Some have gotten it out with bleach and peroxide poultices. Um, but I, I know there's there's at least two uh, uh, kits that are available out there, and I'll mention them. Uh, one is called Blue Be Gone. You can buy that from Braxton Bragg. And the other one is called TE uh, Blossom, and that's by 10X, T-E-N-A-X. And they both have kits that are designed specifically uh, to remove that that blue green blue green bloom. Another issue I've seen, uh, I'd like to say rarely, and I, but it's not very often, but we do get this occasionally, and that's silicone bleeding into granites. And the first thing I ask, and this could be on a seam, this could be that you're setting with silicone. Uh, the first thing I usually ask when it comes to that is, what type of silicone did you use? Did you use 100% clear silicone, which is usually what I recommend? And in a lot of those cases, that's not what they used. You know, the worker ran out of silicone, ran down to Home Depot or Lowe's, and bought a cheap acrylic caulk because he only had a couple of bucks on him, used it, and lo and behold, a week, a month, three months later, you get a call from the customer that the silicone is bleeding through. So, you know, guys, we're dealing with a lot of granites that we haven't dealt with in the past. And some of these granites are extremely absorbent. Uh, if you're dealing with a new granite and you're unsure, I would take a small sample of it, put some of the silicone on the, on the edges of it, because remember the edges are raw, they're not polished. Let it set for a couple of days and see if it bleeds in. If it bleeds in, uh, you might want to rethink the type of silicone that, the silicone that, that you're using. So that, that doesn't really solve that problem, but uh, uh, that's where that, that problem is coming, coming from. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about top polishing. And what I mean by top polishing is polishing the face of the granite or, in this case, the engineered stone. So we'll, we'll take them one by one. Let's first take granite. Uh, you may be installing a granite countertop and it scratches. And this conversation is also good for you restoration guys out there that are doing this work. You might be called in by the fabricator. But if you're doing the top polishing yourself, uh, the, the number number. Two issues I get when, uh, when when guys try to polish top polish granite countertops is the first issue is is they get too aggressive and they end up putting a dish 
or what we call a bowl in the countertop. So you get a great shine on it. When you look across it, you got this dip. And as a matter of fact, I did a video blog, my last video blog I did, I think, last week. Uh, go to YouTube and type in Stone and Tile Video Blog, and you'll see this blog where someone actually did that. And you can actually see the wave or the dip in the top of, in top of the stone. That's issue number one. So you, you could call it a dip. You can sometimes you'll get what they call a you know a wavy issue. The second issue that I see a lot of times is that improper feathering. In other words, imagine a, a small scratch on a granite countertop. You take your first diamond, you take an area that's say about three or four inches and you hone it and then you start feathering out with your grits and you get to the end of the grit and you end up with a halo completely around there which you can't get out. So how do you avoid a lot of these problems? All right, I'm going to discuss that. And some of these apply to the engineered stone as well. But first of all, we're going to talk about granite in general, face polishing granite. The first thing you want to use is a hard backer pad. And you want to try to avoid using anything that flexes. If it, you know, if you go back to the to the to the slab factory and see how they're polishing this, they're they're polishing it with large wheels on a very hard surface. There's very little flex in that, so you want to keep that in mind. So if you use a soft backer uh, on your hand machine with a soft diamond, you're going to get waves. Uh, second tip is don't start too aggressive. Start with the gentlest means possible. You know, depending on what brand you're using, there's different grits. Obviously, you guys know that. Uh, you know, start with, say, a 400 or somewhere in that range, a 4 to 500, and see if it removes the scratch and work that. And then start feathering out. Now, when you feather out, you need to make sure you overlap by at least half the size of the diamond that you're using. And you want to run those for a long time. Face polishing is probably one of the most difficult things you can do in this in this industry is to face polish and make it all blend without redoing the entire countertop. Again, reminder, we're talking granite only here. So, um, you know, make sure, another tip is make sure you're using diamonds specifically designed for granite polishing. I've had guys call me and are not getting a good result. I ask them what diamond they're using, and they're using an inexpensive diamond that's designed for doing marble. Well, that's fine and dandy for marble, but for granite, it's a whole different ball of wax, especially with black black materials. Um, a lot of times, guys will get it to a decent shine, but they can't get the color back in the stone, and this is especially true with Black Absolute, when you face polish Black Absolute. Uh, a little trick that I, I learned and developed a long, long time ago is this. Take a number one grade steel wool pad, make it into a pad, wind it on your, uh, on your, your pad driver, then take some granite polishing powder. If you're dealing with black, for example, you're going to take the black, you know, tin oxide granite polishing powder, put a little bit down, and instead of using water, use crystallization fluid. Now, oh my God, Fred, crystallization fluid, aren't you totally against? Yes, I am. But remember, and I'm not going to describe what crystallization is, go back and look at my video blog or look at the, uh, the, the radio show that I did on that whole topic, is it won't react with granite because granite contains no calcium for the most part. So you're really not crystallizing the granite. What the crystallization fluid is doing is adding a little bit of lubricant, uh, and it's, it becomes an issue that it, that it works better than water does. So basically add a little powder, add the crystallization fluid, work it into a slurry, go from wet to totally dry, do that several times, and you will pop that shine or that color, I should say, right back in, into, into the granite surface again. All right, so 
let's move on to engineer stone. How does engineer stone differ? It, it differs somewhat. And first of all, you don't want to get too aggressive with it. If you get too aggressive, you end up burning the resin and the material and very difficult to get it back. So again, same rule applies. Start with a very light colored, or I'm sorry, a light grit. Now, I will tell you this, and you can do this in your shop or if your restoration guys have a piece, take a piece of engineered stone and scratch it. Scratch it with whatever will scratch it. And then get yourself a microscope. Get one of those little handheld microscopes. And if you look at that scratch really, really carefully, you'll see that the quartz portion of it may have not scratched, but the resin did. Quartz didn't, resin did. If you look under a microscope and you see that, you don't have to resurface the entire thing. And here's a little trick with those, that, that material. And that is, take some acetone, take some steel wool, and rub the acetone in with some steel wool. A lot of times, you can re-emulsify the resin and completely eliminate that scratch. Now, it may take some work, but you don't have to break out the hand machine and you don't have to break out the diamonds. If you have to break out the diamonds, say another piece of you know, granite or quartz scratch that, and you have to break out the diamonds, Again, same rule applies. Make sure you use diamonds specifically designed for engineered stone. And, guys, I wouldn't cheap out on that. I'd get some really good diamonds when you're face polishing. Might be able to get away with it on a profile, but on, on face polishing, you've got to be exact. Overlap properly. You're going to use slower RPM on your, on your hand machine and as much water as you can possibly you know, use without getting it all over the place if you're dealing with some, someone's home as opposed, as opposed to a fab shop. And usually what happens is if you do that and you do it correctly, uh, you get a heck of a shine on the engineered stone, but it now doesn't match the surrounding surface. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's several companies out there. Alpha Tools is one. I think Braxman sells a one. Grand Court sells a diamond that's designed to bring that stippled alligator type, you know, uneven surface back to a one little trick that I've used that works not all the time, but it does work enough to, to tell you about it, is to take some granite polishing powder, you know, the tin oxide, place it on the area that you've worked on where you have that ultimate shine. Take a, like a hog's hair pad by hand, and what I mean by hand is not with your hand machine, but by hand and rub it with some water. And a lot of times uh, you can bring that, that type of look back simply because what happens when you're polishing, especially when you get to those really, really high grits, what you're doing is you're smearing the resin over the surface, which is giving you that really, really uh, you know, high, high shine. Uh, let me give the phone number out again. We're at the 30-minute mark, and I've just got a few more topics to cover. But if you want to go back and rehash some of these other topics or have a question or have a comment, uh, feel free to call me at 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. Or send me uh, an instant message on, on Facebook. Just look for Stone Forensics. Or send me an email at fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Okay, let's talk about storing glue. And this is a question I get all the time, and this is something that I see wrong all the time. And I, I'm not going to give you a lecture on OSHA. Uh, we actually spent an entire uh, show on that with Karen Rowe uh, a while back on uh, being uh, OSHA compliant. But in order to store your glues, they shouldn't be stored on a shelf. Um, and a couple of things about glues. Glues are dated. And what I mean by dated, I don't mean they have a, a born-on date like a Budweiser beer does, uh, but they do have a shelf life. You know, especially if you're dealing in a really humid environment, that shelf life may only be about a year. Uh, so uh, what we used to do is store, like we were using our polyesters, and I'm going to describe 
the difference between epoxies and polyesters here in a minute as my last topic, um, the hardener sometimes will go bad and tend to separate. Uh, and what we would do is store those in a refrigerator, stick them in a plastic bag, a Tupperware container, uh, put them in your refrigerator. Just don't don't uh, confuse them for the uh, icing you get with Pop-Tarts. Uh, I laugh, but I actually had that happen. Uh, and uh, you warm them up before you get before you use them, and they'll last a lot longer. Your glues, according to OSHA, need to be stored in a file in a fireproof cabinet. And you see these. You go to any safety equipment company, uh, you know, Google it on the internet that sells, you know, all the safety equipment, and you'll see these. They're usually yellow cabinets that you open up, and that's where your glue should be stored if you're not using them. So um, if an OSHA, you, you, OSHA comes in and inspects you, they're going to fine you for that, especially if they realize that what you're using, the polyester or epoxy, has any kind of flammability to it. So um, they're not super expensive. You can get small ones if you're only dealing with a couple of cans, or you can get very, very large ones. But I just thought I'd pass uh, that information uh, along as well. Okay. The last topic, if we don't have any questions, is going to be epoxies versus polyesters. And this is one issue that I get all the time. And I know I've covered this before, but I think it's important enough to cover it one more time, or at least one more time. I'm sure the issue will come up again. And that is, what are the differences between epoxy and polyester? And more important than that, where do I use and where do I not use polyesters? Okay, first polyesters. Polyesters are what most of you guys use out there. How can you tell it's a polyester if you have a can of glue, polyester, and it has a small tube with hardener? It'll be white or it'll be clear that you're dealing with polyester. You could also do something really innovative, and you could read the can. <laughs> It'll say polyester on it. And a lot of guys just use the word epoxy as a general rule. It's kind of like, you know, here's Xeroxes. Well, Xerox is a brand. Uh, it's not, it doesn't mean copy. So we're doing the same thing here. So I get guys all the time saying, well, I used epoxy on it. Well, I, I rotted with epoxy. I laminated with epoxy. And I'd say, okay, uh, what kind of epoxy did you use? Well, I used the Kimi. Okay. Or they used 10X. Okay. Well, how did you apply it? Well, I mixed it on a piece of cardboard. Then I added the hardener. What do you mean you added a hardener? A little great, uh, white stuff? Yeah. Well, that's not epoxy, guys. That's polyester. Here's the problem with polyesters. It doesn't have a great bond to it. Uh, it actually has a fairly weak weak bond, especially if you're polishing or polish if you're gluing a smooth surface to a smooth surface. I have seen many of laminations fail when epoxy is used. I can go to any rotting issue where you have a rod in a countertop and you've used polyesters, and I can take a screwdriver and pop that rod right out with the glue. So. Also, polyesters are very sensitive to UV light. That's what that's the, that's the type of resin that's being used in, in resining granites and the manufacture of, of engineered materials. It's a it's a polyester resin, very sensitive to UV light, and it'll get brittle and break down over time. And I know I've, I've harped on this harped on this before. Uh, on the other hand, epoxies tend to have a very strong bond. Uh, they tend to be more UV resistant. Nothing is UV proof, but a little bit more UV UV resistant uh, than than a polyesters are. So, if how do you tell you're dealing with epoxy? Again, you could do that innovative thing and read the label, or you could 
look at the fact that you're using volume-to-volume mixing. So you'd have part A, part B. Depending on the brand, you might mix them one-to-one. You might mix them two-to-one. You're generally dealing with an epoxy. I am going to show you. I can't do it here on, on, the, on the radio, obviously, but I'm getting ready to do a blog. I'm going to do it this weekend, a video blog, showing you a test that was performed using polyesters and using epoxies and how they pull apart uh, fairly fairly easily. So uh, uh, stay tuned for that. If you don't, uh, if you're not subscribed to my video blog, go to YouTube and uh, just look at the Stone and Tile video blog. Search for that, or search Stone Forensics. You'll find it. Subscribe to it, and you can get updated on those video blogs. Or if you like, uh, send me an email, and I'd be more than happy to uh, to email you the link uh, as well so you can look at those video blogs. I think I've done like, I don't know, 13 or 14 video blogs so far from various topics. So really, I, I like the video blogs because instead of talking about them like I do here, I can actually show you uh, with, with video as to what I'm talking about, and I'm going to do the same uh, this coming weekend with the epoxy versus the polyester. You'll actually see the pull test uh, that was used to show you how easy uh, polyester comes comes apart in a bond and how difficult it is to pull epoxy off. So uh, stay tuned stay tuned for that. All right, I'm going to wrap things up here for uh, for today's show. Uh, I'll put the word out there that, again, if uh, you guys want to be on the show, you want to be interviewed, you have something interesting to share, or just want to gab, that's what this is here for. My whole main goal uh, for the show is to educate you guys and help you guys out, whether you're a, a fabricator, an installer, or a restoration contractor, or an architect, an engineer, or someone like me, an inspector. Uh, this, this is what it's designed to do to, to help you. Uh, speaking of inspections, uh, I'm already getting uh, sign-ups for the next Stone Inspection or Troubleshooting Seminar, which is going to happen in January alongside the Stone Show out there in Las Vegas. So if anyone is interested, please send me an email to fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. And I'd be more than happy to send you some information or give me a call directly. I'm going to give out my cell phone number, uh, which is my business phone, which is 321-514-6845. That's 321-514-6845. Now, I've done this show now for over a year, believe it or not. And you'll notice I haven't had any sponsors up to that. And I'm ready to take on some sponsors. That's not going to change the theme of the show. I'm not going to be partial as far as opinions go, uh, but someone's got to pay for this airtime, and uh, right now it's been coming out of my pocket. So if you know anybody out there that would like to sponsor the show, very inexpensive, uh, feel free to drop me an email, fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. If you're listening to this on the archives, uh, feel free to send me a question about any of these topics, either on this archive or previous archives. Uh, Make sure to follow my Facebook page. Just search for Stone Forensics every Friday. I put up a failure Friday with kind of a unique uh, uh, failure that occurs. If you're interested in that, uh, you can subscribe to that as well as a video blog and, of course, this show. Uh, So until we see everybody uh, next week, everyone have a great Fourth of July. Uh, Be careful with those fireworks, guys, and uh, we'll, we'll see everybody or listen to everybody next week.